This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to the Friday Sporting Edition of Pacific Bees here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Richard Hewitt. Coming up, the push for gender equality and gender equity gathers pace in Fiji rugby. I still believe that the women's rugby will be the first team. Fijiana will be the first team. They'll bring home the World Cup trophy. He'll be 42 when the next Winter Olympics come around, but Cassetti Skeen is determined to be there and fly the flag for Tonga. That's still the ultimate goal, and I feel like I'm getting closer. So now I just want to be able to go and really attack the course at the World Championships. And the Solomons Prime Minister has challenged his country to win 40 gold medals at the Pacific Games in Honiara this year. And ageless weightlifter Jen Lee Winnie wants three of them. I always say I will retire soon, but then, because I love uh, weightlifting, I'm passionate about so, like, when it comes to retire, I don't know when. I say 2.23 is my last, but who knows? More to come from Jenny Winnie later in the programme. But first, it's the sports story from the Pacific that has gone around the world, and it centres on this young man. Kalu now over the top for Solomon Islands looking to use the pace of Leai Leai, Leai bursting through, Leai can he finish, ah, big on to the near post he's done it, 3-1 Solomon Islands, Leai on the score sheets again a hat-trick last time against Tahiti, he's carried on that good form and he's scored in the second half here against Papua New Guinea it's 3-1 Solomon Islands Solomon Islands international Rafael Leai has become the first soccer player from his country to sign a professional contract in Europe. After a month-long trial with Premier League team Varej Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina, the 19-year-old striker has signed on until May next year with the possibility of an extension if all goes well. It's a successful and groundbreaking conclusion to a story that has seen Leai linked with clubs in Argentina, Australia and Turkey before he struck gold. And it's great news for all aspiring players in the Solomons and the Pacific, for that matter, because it would appear the door to a European career with those, for those with the necessary talent is open at last. The driving force behind it all has been Hudson Wakio, the owner of Henderson Eels FC. Rafael Leai is now former club in Honiara. I know he, he has the capability and the talent. Anybody would, would like it. So I know that a lot of people are interested, so it's just a matter of um, exposing him out. As soon as someone identifies him, they will take him straight away. What reaction have you had back from Raphael himself? He's still a very young man. He's from Solomon Islands. Bosnia is a very, very different country. So I imagine he, he has two tasks now. One, to settle down in a country that is strange to him, but also to prove himself on the football field. He has a mixed reaction. First, he was so pleased and so happy about the contract that he signed. The second is he's a bit of uh, like still in his uh, learning and adoption process. He's still trying to adapt to the to the country, especially the weather and to the football training and the tactics that they, they learned from that side of the world. But we were so happy that we have another person who's really instrumental in his uh, movement to Bosnia. 
he's uh, one of the co coaching staff of the club. So he's acting like a Rafael's guardian who look after him there. So I think he will be adapting very quick with the help of that person, Adnan. It was suggested that he was going to go to Bosnia, get used to conditions in Eastern Europe at this time of the year, and then head potentially to Turkey, where there was a club in the top division there who were also interested in him. So have Velej Mostar in, in Bosnia hijacked the deal or was it always intended that he would go there? It's, it's not clear. The signing that he's doing now, actually it's a plan B. The plan A is for him to go to Bosnia just for preparation mm -hmm. and should move to Turkey for a trial. But if we go for that process, it will continue costing myself and Henderson Eels Club to continue meeting all this cost. So when he was in Bosnia, they suggested that if they could sign him and continue to develop him and send him for further trial, either in Turkey or elsewhere. So I think that option is good for us. It will be a much cheaper for us. So because when they get him on board, they will be look after him. They give him salary. They give him everything that he needs so that he can stay there. Because I know that he has the potential to grow. He has the talent. So I think he will still move out from Bosnia sometime soon. So that's the reason why I accept the, the plan B. That is for the club in Bosnia to sign him, develop him and send him somewhere later. If we go back a little way in Raphael's career, he was at school and playing in New Zealand. He had a brief spell here in Melbourne at the Melbourne Victory Academy, the, the A-League club. They seemed very keen on him, but I believe there were practical reasons why they couldn't sign him at the time. But are you surprised? that he didn't find a professional club a little closer to home? I was thinking the same way as you, that at least he should get something closer to home, especially Australia, because I was the one who sent him to Melbourne, and I know all the stories about Melbourne, the intentions, but it's all back to him. I tried to convince him, but he answered to me, he said that oh, rather than I play for the academy level, I think I have the capability to play competition levels, because if he went back to Melbourne, the initial plan is for him to stay with the development side, like under 19 and 23 but he himself he wanted to join competitions rather than playing for academy levels so that's one of the reasons that he chose to go for the trial in Turkey and later on change to Bosnia So still a very young man but clearly very ambitious and I would suggest very confident in his abilities but what's really important about this deal that he signed is that it could finally open the door for other players from Solomon Islands and you would hope from elsewhere around the Pacific to perhaps get a chance in Europe which has hasn't been there before. Yes, yes, that's very true. Rafael going there, it shows other people we can also go there if we have the potential and the capability that Europe is looking for. So it comes back to our players and to all the people who are also involved in football development and they want to send their players abroad. The opportunities out there, but we must have the quality and the standard that they're looking for. Send someone to Europe without the quality that they're looking for, they will definitely come back without signing any deal. So would you see other players, either from your own club, Henderson Eels, or from other teams in Solomon Islands, possibly heading to Europe quite soon now? Or the other way around, would you expect to see a few European scouts turn up perhaps in Honiara? Yes, I think for a start, we were the ones that should head in that direction because uh, we need to send a couple of them so that they can prove that we were going there. And in that way, we can turn the heads of the scouts to turn our ways to the Pacific Islands. So I think we need to send a couple more mm. to Europe so that they can prove themselves that we have this capability and this talents that they're looking for. So yes, for Henderson Hills, we are still thinking of sending a couple of our players abroad, probably in the next couple of months or maybe next year. 
Hudson Wakio, the owner of uh, Henderson Eels Football Club in Honiara, the prime mover behind Rafael Leai's historic move to the professional game in Europe. And we wish him uh, every success with it. That is Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina. It could be uh, absolutely groundbreaking, not just for him, clearly, but for uh, the sport of soccer in the Pacific. So fingers crossed. You're with Pacific Beats here on ABC Radio Australia with our Friday focus on sport. And for more than a century, men have held sway at the Fiji Rugby Union. But since the change of government in December, the spotlight has been on modernising the FRU and certainly involving more women in the running of the sport. When Fijiana won sevens bronze at the Tokyo Olympics in 2021, it proved to be the catalyst for pushing the women's game to the fore. And now that could involve the creation of a women's version of the senior men's competition, the Fairbrother Challenge, with the backing of the FRU president, who is still Frank Bainimarama. And he, well, he will be there in that role at least until the annual meeting in April. A reporter in Suva, Lede Mavono, is keeping a close eye on Fiji rugby's changing times. When Fijiana won their first Olympic medal in Rugby Sevens at the Tokyo Games in 2021, it ended a 20-year battle by women players to be recognised at home. Suddenly, far from struggling to find players to fill teams, the Fiji Rugby Union experienced a spike in interest from women and from the parents of little girls who want to be a Fijiana. Velano Dukindi, the FRU's Rugby Development Officer, has played in, coached and managed women's teams and believes it will be Fijian women who will win their country's first Rugby World Cup title in 15s. I still believe that the women's rugby will be the first team. Fijiana will be the first team. They'll bring home the World Cup trophy. The men existed 100 years. Yeah? We just existed 20 years, more than 20 years ago. But I still believe with the right resources and the right people on the ground, we can bring it home. Even now, we've seen the tremendous growth in women's rugby from the senior level right down to primary school. Last year alone, there was more than 9,000 young girls registered. Those are registered players. That's a huge number. The theory is that with more women on the boards of affiliate unions, more resources and access will be given to women to fill teams, coaching positions and refereeing roles, not only in the regional towns, but also at national level. Right now, Fiji's national women's 15s and 7s teams and the Fijiana Super Rugby Outfit are all coached by men. This is something that we've been waiting for for so long. But to use the big stick for that to happen, I think that's the only way that that needs to be done. Very cultural, traditional. And if we can do it, I mean, if rugby can do it in this male-dominated space, I believe any organization in Fiji, any places that are male-dominated, I think for me, I'm grateful and I'm so happy that Fiji rugby is taking the lead in gender equality, not only equality, but equity. Now, we can say equality, but we need more resources to be given to the women for them to excel in this space. Otherwise, gender equality with the numbers, we can have both equal numbers, but then more resources are given to the men. It won't happen. So if we are thinking of gender equality, might as well push for gender equity as well. Since the bronze medal, there was a spike in the number of players. The girls, they are there. They really want to play. I think that win really changed the mindset of gatekeepers, parents, the Turanganikoro, the teachers. They said, oh my goodness, so the girls can also play rugby. They can also achieve a lot in this space. Following months of investigations into the Fiji Rugby Union's financial position, Tevita Tuilo, a board member who is also a chartered accountant, was appointed as interim chief executive and tasked with preparing the organization for its next annual general meeting scheduled for the last week of April. 
His task is mammoth because of the 28 member unions of the Fiji Rugby Union, only 20% are fully compliant in five critical areas, one of which is gender inclusivity. Under the current FRU constitution, only the compliant members are able to talk during an AGM or an SGM, audited financial statements, having an annual general meeting, having club games being run properly to finish off, and also the other gender-related issues, eh? women on the board, women in rugby, are we actually doing enough for them? Already the women are doing a lot off and on the field, so why can't we allow them to come to the table where the big decisions are made. You know, if our mothers and our sisters are already doing a lot for our players and for the game, then they also need to have a seat at the table to be able to give the female touch. But I think for us at Fiji Rugby too, there's an opportunity to match that with some of our local competitions. There's a good initiative that was raised by Subarak Union in terms of having a fair brother for the women. Why are we only doing it for the men? Why not for the women? So that was a motion. It was a very good motion. Uh, we will have to take it up. Uh, but the president and chairman of Fiji Rugby really agreed it was a good idea just to grow the excitement and really the passion for the game for the women. Eh? I've been at the grassroots when it's a Friday game for the women, it's just the women's family that come. Ovinim Bokini heads one of the smallest member unions, the Tavua Rugby Union, located on northwestern Vitilevu in the province of Mba. They have women's teams on their list of registered clubs and women on the board. Yes, we have two executives in our board level and uh, we have a few as well um, getting them involved in coaching accreditation with World Rugby. We have got a few things going to that end. I just encourage them to get involved. How the Fijiana is doing now. There's new interest in uh, people involved in the game, especially from women now. And there should be more interest in uh, people stepping up. Vinny Bukine, head of the Tabua Rugby Union, and the reporter there for Pacific Beat was Lethe Mavono. People's lives have been affected by a disaster. Disasters are inevitable, but losing your home or your life isn't. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. What to do before, during, and after natural disasters in this program aimed at keeping you safe. I'm a Pacific Prepared, Fridays at 8:30 a.m. PNG time here on ABC Radio Australia. Time to take a look at some of the uh, news and sporting headlines from around the region this morning. Carl Evans is uh, keeping an eye on proceedings for us. Morning, Carl. Good morning, Richard. How are you this uh, morning? Um, not 100%, to be perfectly honest, but we'll battle on. Uh, the Flying Fijians have parted company with their head coach just eight months before the Rugby World Cup kicks off in France. Uh, it seems to be a bit fashionable, that. Wales, England, Australia, now Fiji. Yeah, a real interesting one. So, yeah, Vern Cotter has resigned after three years at the helm for uh, for personal reasons. Um, so Fiji Rugby Union's acting chief executive, uh, Tavita Tuiola, has thanked Cotter uh, for his service but didn't offer any explanation uh, for his sudden departure. So uh, we've all moved on pretty quickly, it seems, and names have already been mentioned uh, for the vacant post, uh, including the Crusaders coach, Scott Robinson, uh, and Dave Rennie after his recent departure from the Wallabies. But uh, Seni Zeravakula uh, is also available after stepping down as head coach of Fiji's national women's team. Uh, and there's also FIU's chairman, Humphrey Tawaki. Uh, he said he's not ruling out a local appointment. That's an option that we have, but we're looking across the professionals that are available at this time to ensure that we have that right combination of coaching uh, that we're able to deliver uh, at the right level. There is a pool of players already identified by Bern, 
whether the new coaching staff comes in and can confirm uh, the pool of players and the, and the coaching staff that will be something that will be made in due course once we announce the, the new head coach and the coaching staff. Uh, you, you never know, he might be a local guy or some other but our immediate priority now is the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, so Chairman Tawaki ultimately says a decision uh, on the Flying Fijians new coach will be made by the end of the month. So uh, we'll be waiting with uh, with bating breath there. Yes, it'll be interesting to see who gets the gig, whether they do go local. Uh, I noticed uh, Simon Ramalui, the head of high performance, has also been mentioned in dispatches. A very experienced coach in his own right. So let's see what happens now. An Australian company... As uh, Hell talks to the Vanuatu government about building a new hospital. So what's the background here? Yeah, another interesting one of this. So uh, the Vanuatu National Provident Fund, uh, an Australian-based company, Aspen Medical uh, Advisory Services, have actually signed a memorandum of understanding for a private hospital to be established in Port Vila. So this is reported by the Vanuatu Daily Post, uh, who said it was signed within the presence of the health minister. And basically what that MOU allows is Aspen Medical to conduct uh, an initial scoping study uh, for the design and operation uh, of the hospital uh, alongside the government. So that will cover things like uh, the, mar- the cost, market analysis, um, the facilities, and, and just uh, who's going to manage the, the centre, basically. Um, however, it's also important to point out that the MOU is for scoping only, and, uh, and no official partnership has been signed yet. The Vanuatu government will wait until the feasibility is finished before they, before they sign anything. So it doesn't sound like it's going to be a terribly rapid thing. Uh, do we know when the study might be finished? Well, the study, uh, according to the reports, the study is going to be finished uh, by early this year. So I guess sometime around March, uh, March or April. Um, if it gets up, it'll be operated by both the VNPF and the government. However, it seems like a pretty big if because uh, I know the VNPF has embarked on an identical initiative several years ago uh, with a French medical company, um, but that partnership did not eventuate. So there's probably still uh, still still a few things to be ironed out. And the United States, uh, back in town, as it were, in the Solomon Islands, uh, they've officially announced the reopening of their embassy after quite a few years. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the US now has a diplomatic presence once again uh, in, in the Solomon Islands, um, reported by a number of outlets. It's been pretty pretty big news across the Pacific over the last 48 hours. Um, it was a long time coming as well. It happened very fast, less than 12 months um, after after they announced it. Um, they announced their intention, intentions to reopen that embassy early last year following uh, concerns over China's security pact with the Solomons. Um, so a reactive move in a lot of ways, but uh, one that very much symbolises a uh, renewal of, uh, of relations between um, the two countries. And what does Solomon Islands stand to, to benefit from all this, having the, the Americans back in Honiara? Oh, we only really know what, what the Americans have told us, essentially, but it's the same old language we've, I feel like we've been hearing for the last six months. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's ultimately going to strengthen diplomatic ties, strengthen partnership, economic development. Um, you know, it'll help with, you know, uh, finishing off the last of the COVID-19 pandemic and ultimately uh, addressing challenges around climate change. Uh, it's also going to mean a lot more US diplomatic personnel on the ground in Honiara. Hmm. I wonder if they're going to put any money into the Pacific Games. That's a great question. We shall find out. And uh, yeah, I noticed the other day, might have been Blinken, the Secretary of State, talking about the United States, you know, saying, we're a Pacific country too. So, <laughs> and, you know, just a little bit bigger than the rest, obviously. But uh, so, yeah, we want to help our, you know, our cousins, friends in the Pacific. But yeah, it's um, having, an, having an embassy there. It's all very nice. But yeah, well, let's see what they do practically over the years ahead. I agree. All right, Carl, thank you very much indeed. Carl Evans there with some of the stories uh, making headlines around the region on this Friday morning.
I'm Richard Hewitt. If you're just joining us, I'm Richard Hewitt. <laughs> Even if you're not just joining us, it's just me here with the Friday morning sports show. Pacific Beat is our show on ABC Radio Australia. Told you I wasn't 100%, which might explain why the brain is not entirely working as well as I would like, but we'll carry on regardless. It's been several years since I first spoke to a cassette skiing, the alpine skier with Tongan heritage who set out on a mission to qualify for a Winter Olympic Games. And despite a series of personal setbacks and a small matter of a pandemic, he's still determined to fulfil his dream in Italy in three years' time. After not racing at all in 2022, Cassetti has set his sights on the World Championships in France later this month, and he hopes more personal best times. After suffering a serious knee injury in 2017, it's been a hard road back for the athlete who competes under the banner of the Royal Tonga Ski Federation. But as he approaches his 40s, he says his body is holding up well. Funnily enough, I've had a bit of an issue with my ankle, but that's been more with running and it's not really a problem with skiing, but it's made my off-season training a bit harder. But in terms of my knee and skiing, it's all good. So all things being equal, what are your targets for the season ahead? What do you feel you can achieve in these World Championship races? I had a race recently and I managed to set a new personal best in terms of my points. I've got a couple of races coming up and I'm hoping to set the bar higher again And then I want to be able to go to France and really ski as well as I can. In my first two world championships, they were quite difficult. The first one, I had a broken hand and I ended up crashing out. And in my second one, my main goal was to not crash out. (laughs) So now I just want to be able to go and really attack the course at the world championships. And then after the world championships, I'm hoping to pick up a few races where I live in Sweden and enjoy the remaining of the season. We're into the year 2023. Uh, The next Winter Olympic Games will be 2026 uh, in Italy, uh, jointly hosted by Milan and Cortina D'Ampezzo. Three years is a long time for a skier who I think will be 42 when the Olympics come around. Do you believe that you can make the Games, which of course has been your ambition for a long time now, and fly the flag for Tonga? Yeah, that's still the ultimate goal. And I feel like I'm getting closer. Obviously, circumstances change. I have a young child now so I'm balancing that responsibility with work and the ambition to ski so that's all in the mix yeah it's a balancing act Do you take inspiration from other sports because I'm thinking the Tongan Rugby League team has been rather successful of late, the Tongan Netball team has been doing great things and the Tongan Rugby team when they go to the World Cup could be full of star names and who knows what they might do I assume from your point of view you'd love to be part of that setup as it were, to be a recognised name in Tonga. Yeah, absolutely. It's always great to see other Tongan teams doing well in sport in general. So yeah, it's definitely a morale boost as well when you go out, you feel that context. How difficult has it been for you over the last few years with the injury and then with COVID and the other factors that you've mentioned? In terms of funding, how do you go about that? Who underwrites your activities? Because clearly being on the world circuit is not cheap. No, and yeah, it has been really difficult over the pandemic with costs soaring, um, with things like testing. A lot of those costs go back on to either the athlete or the club or the federation. So we are lucky enough to have equipment support from shuffle who provide our race suits and clothes and from Klinau who are providing helmets and goggles and Kessel who are providing our skis. So we're 
sorted there. We're just looking for funds also to help us go to even more races and progress further and faster. And are there other skiers still within the Tongan setup, as it were? Because there have been, I think, four or five who were looking to make progress. And I assume, as with yourself, COVID didn't exactly help. But are you alone in this campaign or are there others that hopefully will make the Winter Olympics too in 26? At the moment, I'm alone, but I think there are a couple of new talents on the horizon. So that would be great. One of the trials of my experience is often being a solo skier without the kind of camaraderie and support of other skiers around me. So, you know, I fully encourage and welcome anyone who wants to go down that road. Have you come across other skiers who have Tongan heritage like yourself on the world circuit? Because at the moment, it seems to be the way that Tongan sport is going. I mean, the netball team, for example, is entirely made up of players from outside the islands. They'd love to have local players, but they just don't have the setup at the moment. I've come across Tongans who ski or snowboard, but no one who wants to do ski racing i've actually got a cousin who lives down in queenstown who has a ski shop they're big into their off-piste ski touring heli skiing and that kind of stuff which is a a kind of parallel universe from the kind of tiny thin skis that i race on but at the same time it's the same sport so i think the interest and passion is out there and snowboarding of course is an olympic sport now so maybe that could be another angle for tonga to explore yeah absolutely and surfing for example definitely transferable skills between surfing and snowboarding as well. But as far as you're concerned, after the bumps you've experienced in the last few years, you're looking forward to a full season this year and all being well, the countdown is on to 2026. Yeah, exactly. Fingers crossed for a good season and we'll take it from there. Yeah, Cassetti skiing, he's a very determined fella. He wants to make the 2026 Winter Olympics in Italy. Under the Tongan flag, he was on there from his home in Sweden, in fact. He was actually born and brought up in London, uh, but his family on his father's side are from Vaval and Tongatapu, respectively, in the Tongan Islands. So it'd be great to see Cassetti make it to the Olympics. Of course, Peter Tafatatur uh, famously made it and uh, <laughs> did the bare-chested entry at the Winter Olympics and indeed at the Summer Olympics because he's competed in both, one in taekwondo and the other in cross-country skiing. So, uh, yeah, there is a bit of a precedent there, but uh, Cassetti, he's a decent skier, actually. He's had some good results lately, so let's hope for the best that he makes it to Italy 2026. Now, to continue on the sporting theme, she won her country's first ever Commonwealth Games medal in 2018, and more recently, she won three golds at the Pacific Mini Games in Saipan. Now, weightlifter Jenly Winnie is looking to end her career on a high with more golds at her home Pacific Games in November. But, on the other hand, she might just keep going. Kristen Rita Amano-Leong went along to an open day at Solomon Islands' thriving National Institute of Sport to talk Pacific Games with Jenly Winnie and table tennis player Selwyn Koto. Well, breaking lift here, Solomon Islands have dominated this class and that lady has been absolutely magnificent. She'll be 40 by the time the Pacific Games come round in Honiara later this year. But age won't be an issue for Solomon Islands golden girl, Jen Lee Winnie. I always say I will retire soon, but then because I love uh, weightlifting, I'm passionate about. So like when it comes to retire, I don't know when. I say 223 is my last, but who knows, maybe I'll continue or I'll help the other young ones to come up and represent Solomon Island in coming games. Winnie is no stranger to medals. And with Prime Minister Manasi Songovari challenging Team Solo to win 40 golds at their home Pacific Games, 
she's very determined to grab three of them. I want to set my record here in Solomon Island and to compete in front of your family and friends and your supporters that always support you from the beginning of your career till the home game. It will be a great moment. 14 years ago, Jen Lee Winnie started training in an old, dusty, multi-purpose hall in Honiara before joining the Oceania Weightlifting Institute. Although her exit plan isn't being put into action just yet, she feels there's still more for her in her sport as a strength and conditioning coach at the Solomon's High Performance Institute. The weightlifting here in Solomon Island, they have to pull up their socks and do more. Because it's not only us in Solomon Island, there's other countries that compete. It is a long way. Nothing is hard if you're committed to what you love in sport. If you love your sport, then you have to be committed and disciplined. As many as 500 athletes a day frequent the National Sporting Institute as they look to raise standards and hunt down medals. Among them is Selwyn Koto, an emerging table tennis player who thinks having a table tennis coach would be a good start. If you want gold, we should think uh, a little big, especially when it comes to athletes uh, during trainings and then we can't just play and then we expect we need uh, better coaches. Yeah? They will be there to guide us, especially when we are during our training. If we don't have coaches, we can't just play here and then train every now and then. Oh, we expect gold. Gold for Koto and his table tennis teammates might be a long shot, but he's adamant that their day will come. I want to see table tennis grow in this country. I want to see children growing up and then attending competitions, uh, both domestically and uh, internationally. And that performance should be, should be level up with those other countries. Not just to participate, no. I don't want that kind of thinking. We're supposed to go there and then prove ourselves. Very determined uh, table tennis player Selwyn Kotu uh, keen to set the benchmark high for the home team as the countdown to the Pacific Games in Solomon Islands in November continues. And the reporter there in Honiara was Chris and Rita Amano-Leong. Join me, Rick Howe, on Island Music for the finest in ska, rocksteady, roots, dub, sizzling dancehall and all the hottest releases from around the Pacific. Hi, I'm Ronnie Kareni from Sorong Samurai and you're listening to Island Music. My name is Tierney from Titanio Takara and you're listening to Island Music. Join me, Rick Howe, on Island Music. Saturdays, 12pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Great show, uh, not to be missed. You can uh, catch it live or, of course, listen on the app if that's more convenient for you. Now, the team from Samoa are enjoying their best season on the World Rugby 7 circuit for several years. Uh, right now, they sit third on the standings and they'll be keen to stay in the top four and secure an automatic place at the Olympic Games in Paris next year. It's a team that has been assembled on home soil and one that has grown in confidence despite the restrictions imposed on the players by the COVID pandemic. So what does it mean to wear the blue jersey of Manu Samoa? During the Sydney Sevens tournament just last weekend, World Rugby spent some time inside the Samoan camp talking to assistant coach Tausa Famaoni Lalomilo, Tangaloa Dalia Tafita from the New South Wales Samoan community and one of the Manu Samoa players, Paul Etty Slater. Thank you, Thank you. 
Growing up in Samoa, it's every um, boy's dream to uh, put on the blue jersey. Getting that jersey, it's, it's not just for us, but it's for our families, our friends, and all our villages back home that are, that are supporting and praying for us each and every day. So um, we have a really young squad. A year and a half or two years ago, they were still fresh out of high school. Some still in high school, so very young team and now we're like one big family. We love being around each other. It's part of our culture. In Samoa, you know, we love to uh, laugh and it just brings us all together, the bond. Yeah, so the Samoan culture, we are um, very strong Christian belief and a lot of our, our whole teams based around you know, our faith with the man above. Morning, uh, evening, we all do a yeah, morning prayer, evening prayer, so we can keep our culture. We love it and we think that God helps us. That's why we keep singing and praising God wherever we go. So they offer themselves to serve the Samoan people and they are the flag carriers for our country. Once you receive the jersey, it's a sign of uh, you carry the whole country. So you have to work hard and you have to keep all you have. That's your, your calling. You know, coming from a, a nation of only 200,000 people, we play for them. So receiving that jersey means everything for us. It brings us together. When we play, the whole country is behind us, you know. Early hours of the morning, anytime, they're all there watching, supporting, and we know that. So we never want to make let our country down. So we play with our hearts for our country. Growing up and living in Samoa, coming to Sydney, is a, uh, it's a real eye-opener for me to see you know, how many Samoans living in Sydney and the Sydney community welcomed us with a traditional Ava ceremony. So uh, we share the drinks together with the uh, host party and also the uh, traveling uh, party to uh, show their support. When our squad first came together, that was our dream and goal to, to lift the cup and to finally hear the, the national anthem of Samoa being sung in a, in a full stadium, in an international stadium. And it's been six years since we've uh, won the cup and Cape Town, we finally we finally fulfilled our dreams. We came close five times and there was a lot of heartbreak. But to finally win it in Cape Town and going back home and seeing the smiles on the kids' faces just brought a lot of joy to us. One of our goals was to really inspire the youth, the next generation through rugby and, and seeing their faces really, I think, hit home for us. Thank you to all our fans in Samoa and all around the world for your support and your belief in us. That's uh, Paul Eddie Slater, one of the uh, squad for the Manu Samoa Sevens team on the World at Rugby Sevens circuit. Just at the moment, you also heard from Tapa'u. No, you didn't hear from him. We'll hear from him shortly. My apologies. You heard from Paul Eddie Slater. You also heard from assistant coach Joseph Amaoni Lalamilo and Tangaloa Daniel Tavita from the New South Wales Samoan community were very welcoming for the Samoan side, as you would expect when they were in Sydney last weekend. And that report uh, produced by World Rugby. 
Now, we move on to the Pacific Oz Sports Programme, uh, funded by the Australian Government, and it's extending its reach outside the country with the expansion of its regional hub in Samoa. The Apia office opened in 2020, uh, but uh, now, under the watchful eye of manager Tapau Alex Mikhail, it's looking to recruit more staff. With its finger on the Pacific Pulse, the hub's aim is to develop elite sporting pathways for athletes and teams from the region, with a particular emphasis on in-country programmes. Overall, Tapau says he wants Pacific Oz Sports to have a very visible presence in the region, as well as a direct connection to headquarters in Australia. The establishment of the hub is an extension of the Pacific Oz Sports Program in Canberra and it's tasked to increase the visibility of Pacific Oz Sports Program, to share knowledge and information with key stakeholders both in Australia and in the Pacific, looking at strengthening the um, Pacific sports relationship with the key stakeholders, looking at ways to identify and respond to local and regional sporting opportunities and most importantly uh, to support the Pacific High Commissions and Embassy with their sports diplomacy activities. So it's the overview of the regional hub in the Pacific and in Samoa to have that physical presence. Much of what Pacific Oz Sports has done up to now essentially is involved, as I see it, organising training for Pacific athletes in Australia, particularly ahead of big events like the Commonwealth Games. Does your appointment and the existence of the hub in Apia suggest that there might be a bit of a change now and there may be a move towards taking the trainers to the athletes rather than the other way around? I think the programme also aims to ensure that the elite coaching and athletes from Australia increase their presence in the Pacific. So spending more time in the Pacific, engaging with the stakeholders and building that local capacity. So this can be achieved through tours and short-term training courses whereby, you know, the knowledge and skills are shared to upskill the next generation of sporting champions in the Pacific, so in their countries. And at the same time, Pacific athletes and coaching benefits from high-performance training offered in Australia that would not have otherwise been available in their respective countries because the resources is always um, constraints with some of those elite pathways and elite athletes that they want to exhale at the next level. So the role of the hub is to look at ways of facilitating emerging opportunities to ensure that men, women and people with disabilities have access and are benefiting from the Pacific Arts Sports Program. So a long-term vision is to ensure that we're bringing knowledge and skills back into the respective Pacific countries and build a local capacity, building a sustainable model. Let's look at your plans and objectives for 2023. Are there particular objectives that you have in mind for the next few months, either across the Pacific or for individual countries or indeed for individual athletes? Well, I think we're just glad that some normalities have been restored with borders and travel restriction now ease. And now we're seeing a lot more travel and exchange than during COVID. So Pacific Oz Sports will continue to work through its partners to unlock the Pacific sporting potential, including rugby, rugby league, netball, and also football. And then we've got some new partnership that we've just um, signed off with the AFL and cricket, as well as tennis. So to date, the program has been able to deliver and support a number of of activities despite the COVID-19 restrictions. So for instance, recently we supported Samoa and Fiji's participation in the Rugby Pacific Nations Cup tournament. We've partnered with the Australian National Rugby League to stage the Pacific Test in Sydney, where featured um, teams from Fiji, Samoa, PNG and Cook Island. 
Uh, we've also supported and delivered in partnership with Netball Australia, the Pacific Coast Sports Netball Series. And we've supported over 170 Pacific athletes from 11 countries to prepare and train for Tokyo Olympic Games. And then similarly, we supported more than 100 Pacific athletes to prepare and train for Birmingham Com Games. So building on that success, the hub will be looking to continue to deepen those engagement with sports organization in partner countries and just to explore sports with potential to build strong pathways from the Pacific to Australia. So a, a priority will be a Pacific athletes development pathway towards the 2032 Brisbane Olympic Games, which is still in the early consultation stage with partner organizations. And then as well as looking at supporting other major regional and major events with the Com Games happening in 2026 Victoria. So I guess those are all sort of the major activities that we're looking to support and facilitate for our Pacific countries. On the ground there in Apio, where you're based, what about the development of rugby league? I mean, clearly the NRL has a presence there through the Samoan NRL, but so much excitement in Samoa over the team's performance at the World Cup where they made it to the final. Um, are you already seeing signs there of a growing interest in that sport? And is it something that Pacific Oil Sports would be involved with too? Yeah, well, Pacific Oil Sports already has a partnership with the NRL that works with the in-country rugby league Samoa national organization. So there is already that relationship. But I think building on from the World Cup, there has definitely raised the profile and interest from players to transition to rugby league as a result of the achievement to Samoa at the World Cup. So again, it's all looking at supporting um, some of those activities, to develop elite local pathways for Pacific athletes and Samoa athletes that are based in country to ensure that they've got a pathway for the next World Cup or the one after that. That's at the bottom. Alex Semikail, our regional sports hub manager for Pacific Sports on the line from Apia. And just uh, harking back to our previous story, uh, inside report on the Mano Samoa Sevens team at the uh, Sydney leg of the World Series. The next leg, that will be in Los Angeles uh, later this month, towards the back end of the month, in fact. And I can tell you that Samoa will be in a, well, kind of mixed-looking pool, really. A USA and Chile, they should be more than capable of uh, defeating those two in current form, but they also have the small matter of taking on uh, series leaders at New Zealand. Uh, Fiji, incidentally, are having a bit of a bumpy ride at the moment. Their fans are getting very disgruntled with the team. It was still a while up there, but uh, clearly not performing quite the way that the fans would like them t- to see. Uh, they'll be in a pool with Australia, Kenya and Japan. So uh, that shouldn't be too much of a problem for Fiji against Kenya and Japan. Australia rather depends what mood they're in. They've been a bit up and down this season. The other pools, incidentally, Pool B, South Africa, Ireland, Uruguay and Canada. And Pool D will feature France, Great Britain, Argentina and Spain. That's the Los Angeles leg of the World Rugby Sevens Series. And it will be played over the weekend of the 25th and the 26th of February. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. I'd never been in the political scenario. I had never voted until I voted for myself, but I made this crazy decision to stand, so I knew I had to work really, really hard. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
And it's it from there. This edition of Pacific Beat, the Friday morning sporting edition. We're back this afternoon at 5 past 3 PNG time with Jordan Fennell at the helm. Pacific Review at various times over the weekend, taking a look back at some of the stories of the last seven days. And then we start all over again on Monday morning, 5 past 6 PNG time with Priyanka Srinivasan. Join her then if you can. I'm Richard Hewitt. Have a great sporting weekend.